Good morning. Have you ever had one of those days when you just so need to be in the house of the Lord? Well, that's me today, so pray with me. God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, draw near now. Amen. Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker is growing, and the weight of that is wearing him down. The term Messiah comes with strings attached, and the people want more, more of his time, more of his energy. He seems trapped in an endless cycle of expected performance. Jesus is growing weary and silences the news of his abilities every chance he gets. But the crowds, well, while the crowds think he's the greatest, what's going on here? What of those labels and what is it about being great that makes life so hard? Now for sure, the crowd might have followed Jesus for the many meals that highlighted his journey from one place to the next. The lure of a decent meal on a somewhat regular basis would have been reason enough to make the trek with him. But a fair portion of the crowd is following for the show. This ancient world version of dinner theater on the road, the spectacle of miraculous healings and food, the deliverance from demon possession, his very presence altering, changing everything. It's compelling. Besides, when you have nothing, well, this could be something, something better, something different. When the world around you is crumbling, could it look like even the tiniest sliver of hope? Whatever it is, it's new. And if this Jesus is the new face of power, how might they attach themselves to it? How do they keep this good thing going? It's human to want to be on the winning side, so they never really leave. The gospel tells us of Jesus' desire to get away from them sometimes, to rest and pray, to be alone in communion with God, but it's almost always a struggle, a struggle but one he knew the importance of. The fact is, his greatness requires it. Jesus has power and their nearness to it is a potent drug, a heady cocktail for the senses that creates only a craving for more. It's not easy being great. So they follow, but their motivation is off. Something's askew, and it's spreading. Still, Jesus knows this to be the walk toward death, and it's important more now than ever that he makes sure those closest to him know the whole story. He's tried telling it before, and it's time to tell it again. Despite their failure to understand, Jesus gives it another go. Today's gospel begins with the foretelling of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is a frank but surprising portrayal of an upside-down victory, one no one around him could see coming, least of all the disciples. They've had a front-row seat to all of it, and then some, the walk on water, the private restoration of a man's hearing, 
A few of them are counted as witnesses to Jesus' transfiguration. So these words, the son of man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. They don't land well. Summed up in his words are the mystery of faith, something we profess each week in the form of ritual remembrance. It's a truth we have to proclaim over and over again. Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The disciples are ready for it. <laughs> like the crowds, they want and need more. The disciples can't or won't hear this rendition of their master's demise. The Messiah on whom they placed all their hopes and dreams, even their political allegiance, can't go down like this. Natural death is very different from the betrayal and ensuing execution Jesus describes. So no, this can't be true. They can't wrap their heads around a weak Messiah, a losing Jesus. And all this talk of death doesn't match up with their positions as members of this elite group of insiders. Nobody wants to be in association with the weak or unsuccessful. The text doesn't say this, but in my sacred imagination, verses 32's lack of understanding and fear leads to a deep-seated and harmful denial. And so they dismiss Jesus' storied teaching and talk among themselves about how their membership on the winning side will benefit them in the days to come. Who will get the corner office when Jesus comes into power? That's where we meet the disciples today, wrestling with the concept of failure as they understand it in the foretelling of Jesus's death. They don't hear the swelling story of what comes after. They don't hear it to the end, where Jesus tells them that death is not dying. They miss it. They don't hear resurrection. They stop at death and are unable to imagine their newly proclaimed Messiah as anything less than a capable and able winner. They tell another story and fashion it around their dreams of victory. They want Jesus to be great. And they want to be great too. They're just not too sure about what greatness means or is. What does Jesus mean by great? Does the greatest have more money, more followers, the highest position with greater authority, more power? Are they stronger or faster? Have they always served longer than everyone else? Do great people cry or admit loneliness and defeat? Do they have lofty titles? Do they ever lose? Do they ever admit any of this? Muhammad Ali was an American professional boxer and activist nicknamed the greatest. He built a brand around his personal philosophy of success, winning at all costs. He said simply, I believed in myself. This was self-confidence on steroids, and Ali proclaimed this name because he could or would not consider the possibility of failing. What Jesus points to, however, is something beyond the inflated positive self-esteem exhibited by the great Ali. <laughs> What does it mean to be great? Who is the greatest? 
So they inquire among themselves, knowing the hearts of the disciples and the inquiry turned argument, Jesus determines it's time for a teaching moment. They shocked to hear him prioritize the last over the first and center children, the weak and needy. To be truly great, Jesus says, is to care for them, to look out for them. Jesus is in full on parental mode when he calls the disciples over. Come on now, children, gather round. Let me explain it to you this way. Whoever wants to be first will be last. The greatest is actually the servant of all. And for a moment of show and tell, to physically and verbally remind them that the mission is always and will only be about the unseen and marginalized, he brings a child to sit among them. This is part of the teaching for the day and they have to work hard to understand it. He's teaching that the most important thing we're to do is to actually be like him, him who serves the least of these. In his quest to preserve the future, the dream of God that grounds this mission, Jesus points to the decentralization of self as a truly liberating factor. We, like the disciples, get caught up in the desire to achieve fame and notoriety. We want to be great, and that desire enslaves us. But our success is intertwined, conjoined, as it were. We are only as great as the sum of our parts. So here it is. Ground zero of the mission is with and among the lowest. Get into it, the weakest, the most vulnerable, the marginalized, the overlooked. This, Jesus says, is why he's come. Jesus comes to this world as one on the margins, born an infant to impoverished parents and sets forth the invitation to all to step inside the welcoming embrace of a theology literally built from the ground up. And there is room for us each of us to participate in it. Because at the heart of it all is this great big hug, the fact that we are all children of God. Yes, you and I are just babies. We are vulnerable and in great need. Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka are female athletes at the top of their game in the respective fields of gymnastics and tennis. Popular culture would call them great. They're on their grinds, they slay, they're flawless, or so we imagine. But with these titles come expectations, both personal and professional. Our dreams, hopes, and fantasies, our imagination of greatness can be a burden for them. Of late, those we put on such pedestals are showing us their humanity. They're demanding that we not place on them such lofty expectations. They too are but children of God, flawed, imperfect, and vulnerable, in need of a holy embrace, and with courage and courageous admission, share words like, I can't, I won't. To be clear, we are never talking about a greatness that dismisses the dignity of the servant. Decentering the self means we truly see ourselves as but one part of this beautifully complex system, not the main or the best, 
but a single part, one that needs care as much as any other. This is a servanthood that envelops the reality that at some point we will all be on the receiving end of it, humbled and in need. It's the work of love that trusts, that trusts that eyes of acceptance and care rest on us as well. It's a love that embraces each of us as children of God. A popular image that buzzed around the internet during that time was of Biles, not competing that day, but putting the final touches on a teammate's hairstyle and cheering from the stands. In detaching themselves from a false idea of greatness, in making choices for wholeness, and in showing up for others, these women are redefining what it means to be great. So what do we do with this Jesus who won't be ruled by our expectations? And what is expected of us as his followers? Here's a few things I'm thinking about. This labor, this work of ministry, this call to greatness, this work of love is never a ladder to climb. It is not about selfish ambition or institutional hierarchical structures. Grounded in a theology of the cross, what Catholic theologian M. Sean Copeland calls the teeth-gnashing work of the cross, it upends our human understanding. Death, remember, is not dying. The first will be last. This shift in our collective imagining of greatness calls us to community and demands we not turn away from the poor, the immigrant, the suffering, the marginalized, the other. This is life, even world transforming work. So we begin at the beginning, keeping our mind and heart connected to what's happening, what is needed, thought of, and expressed in the margins. It's what they think and need that matters. And we love, love so deep that we see the lowly, embrace and care for them, participate in developing and advocating for laws that consider their stance and positioning on current and future affairs. We see the children. We see with children those who bring nothing and need everything, who with the psalmist sing, Surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. We join them in song. This story of dying and rising is for us, and we have to hear it. If we are to ever get to this space where we touch the infinite, behold the wild grace and mercy of a savior, we have to hear it. This is a life of letting go of submission and release and being lifted when, like a child, we can't lift ourselves. When perhaps we can't speak or lack the power or implied agency of words. The way of Jesus requires we take up a new way of being in and for the world. It is a radical call to discipleship as we refine our vision of building a better world and lean into a broader and more expansive imagining of what it means to be great. And this is how we do it. 
This is how we dream of a world beyond the one we know. We do what must be done to make the future safe. We care for the vulnerable, the helpless, ushering them and each other into a world of hope. This work of servanthood, friends, this call, this desire toward true greatness as believers is our legacy and obligation. It is our message and mission, our call. Amen. As we continue our service of worship, I invite you into a time of stillness where you can meditate on the word, connect with your breath, just be, and be ministered to by the words of this song. Amen. This is home. 